Welcome to the eighth IPS Northern Lecture Series. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this will be the second time we are conducting the lectures virtually over Facebook Live. Interestingly, the audience for these virtual lectures may well be larger than for the physical versions we did before. That was certainly the case for the previous IPS Northern Lecture Series delivered by Professor Chan Heng Chi. Our, our eighth SR Northern Fellow is, of course, Corina Lim, exec the Executive Director of AWARE. She has been a women's rights activist for almost 30 years. Her lecture series is entitled Gender Equality, The Time Has Come. Her first lecture today is entitled Her Story, The Road to Equality, which appropriately sets the stage for the ensuing lectures by recalling the history of the women's movement in Singapore. Her story, of course, can go back hundreds, if not thousands of years. But the question of gender equality in the modern era in Asia first arose entwined with the anti-colonial, anti-imperialist movements. In China, gender equality was a nascent issue in the May 4th movement in 1919. Why was the West dominant and China backwards, the protesters asked? Because China lacked democracy and science. Mr. Science and Democracy, the protesters answered, must replace Mr. Confucius. There was no Mrs. Democracy, let alone Miss Democracy, but the emancipation of women became soon a central theme in Chinese modernity. It was the same in India and later in our part of the world too, in Indonesia, Malaya and Singapore. Again and again, we saw the women question come to the fore with the burgeoning of anti-colonial nationalist movements. There are a variety of reasons for this. First, there were deeply symbolic reasons. For example, in the invocation Mother India or Vande Mataram, Asian cultures drew on the tremendous force of the feminine principle embedded in many Asian traditions to evoke nationalism and patriotic pride. Second, for pressing social and economic reasons. In both the West and Asia, people became conscious in the late 19th and early 20th centuries of the oppressions women have suffered for centuries. In the West, people began agitating for the vote. And in Asia, people became more conscious of the terrible indignities women suffered, from suti in India to foot binding in China, from oppressive family structures to the physical mutilations of women's bodies. And finally, there were political reasons. Women hold up half the sky, Mao proclaimed. Just as revolutionary movements mobilized workers and peasants, it made sense to mobilize the passions, energy, and force of women in the anti-colonial struggle. In Malaya, we saw the creation of Angkatan Wanita Seda, or AWAS, the movement of conscious women, as it was called, as early as 1945, immediately after the war. In Indonesia, there were radical left organizations like Gerakan Wanita Indonesia, which in 1965 numbered 1.5 million people before it was squelched by the military government that came into power that year. And in Singapore, both the pro-communist left and the non-communist left mobilized women. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, as Wordsworth said of the French Revolution. A last blistering afternoons soon followed. 
The women's movement in Asia or elsewhere did not trace a straight arc onwards and upwards. The vote for women in the West did not see women assume half the positions in legislatures, any more than the education of women lead inexorably to women being treated as equals in Asian societies. Her story is still an unfolding revolution which periodically and persistently has to be nudged along by women as well as men in big ways and small. Thus, our decision to appoint Corina the eighth SR Nathan Fellow. The publicity video describes her as our first activist fellow, though I should add that our first Nathan Fellow, Ho Kwang Ping, managed to get himself arrested under the ISA when he was a student. And our last Nathan Fellow, Chan Heng Chi, was for my generation the iconic dissident public intellectual whose face once appeared on the cover of Newsweek. Activism in Singapore need not always be a dead-end career. So, Corina, your time has come. Thank you. Thank you, Janadas, for that really impressive um, uh, mapping of that history of Asia and women's rights. I am very pleased to be here today and it is really a great honor. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I know how busy everyone is, and I'm really glad that you are here. It would definitely have been better to speak to you in person, but I'm cheered to know that the online delivery actually reaches more people. Because this lecture is going to be very much about the women's movement uh, in the last 60 years, I would like to dedicate this lecture to all women's rights, gender equality activists, past, present, and future. Last November, Jana Das bought me lunch at the cricket club and asked me, would you be interested in being an SR Nathan Fellow for 2021? I was really surprised, but managed not to fall off my chair. I said yes, and here I am today. So honored, and humbled to be the first civil society activist to be awarded this fellowship. My predecessors are either household names or very distinguished civil servants or academics. I don't quite fit into this mold. So before I start, I want to say a big thank you to IPS and the SR Northern Fellowship Committee. Thank you for your trust and for giving me this opportunity to speak about ideals and aspirations that are fundamental to Singaporeans. Justice, equality, respect, safety, living purposeful lives regardless of gender, care for our families and community, these matter to all of us. And these lectures will discuss how we ensure that our laws, policies, institutions, and mindsets embody and support these ideals. In my work at AWARE, for the last 30 years as a volunteer and as a WES executive director, I have heard thousands of stories from women. Often they are stories of distress, problems, and anxieties. Sometimes they have happy endings of empowerment. These stories come in through a WES helpline, our legal clinic, counseling services, the research we do, and our social media channels. 
and I am very grateful to have been able to spend the last three months reflecting on the major issues that affect women, men and families in Singapore today. In preparing for these lectures, I have drawn on my own experience, interviews with many men and women, and from experts and activists everywhere, here and globally. I hope that my lectures will facilitate more discussion on gender issues and also help build more bridges between civil society and policymakers. As Professor Chan Heng Chi said in her final SR Northern Fellowship Lecture, the recent COVID-19 pandemic shows that civil society organizations have a role to play as an early warning system for social issues and fissures in society, be it the plight of abused women, the aging poor, or foreign workers, no matter how unwelcome the feedback. The government and these organizations can work together as both are interested in improving the lives of the vulnerable to build a better community. I could not agree more with Prof Chan. So this is the first of three lectures and they are all connected. In the first lecture titled Her Story, The Road to Equality, I will talk about where we are in the development of women's rights and gender equality in Singapore. How did we get here? What were the lessons learned along the way? And then conclude with some broad points on the gender equality review. Lecture two, titled The Caring Economy, will deal with some very thorny issues that our society and policymakers grapple with. Women's participation in the workplace, gender equality at home, why couples aren't keen to have babies, and our fast aging population. In lecture three, I will talk about men's violence against women, especially sexual violence, men and masculinity, and women and girls' leadership in society. These lectures have been well-timed by IPS to coincide with the government's gender equality review that is currently in progress. The lectures do go beyond the scope of the review, but it is my humble hope that they will contribute to the review and provoke deeper thinking and conversations on gender equality at all levels. So let's start with some basic definitions to ensure that we are all on the same page. Firstly, what is gender equality? I'll take the UN definitions, which I find to be authoritative and clear. Gender equality refers to the equal rights, responsibilities and opportunities of women and men, girls and boys, to enable everyone to fulfill their potential. Gender equality does not mean that women and men are the same, but that women's rights, women and, women's and men's rights, responsibilities and opportunities will not depend on whether they are born male or female. When we talk about gender equality, what aspects of gender equality are we talking about? For our discussion, I'll be touching on these six core dimensions of gender equality. Equal education, economic equality, equal division of power and influence, equal distribution of unpaid housework and provision of care, equal health and the ending of men's violence against women. 
What you see here is what I call the gender equality flower. It has six petals, each representing a key dimension of equality. And at the heart of the flower are gender norms, beliefs, stereotypes, ideas such as men are natural leaders and assertive women are bossy. So we have to address the heart of the flower to really make the flower bloom. Let's take the light orange petal as an illustration. So that's education on the bottom left of your screen. Let's say a government offers girls and boys equal access to education, but parents believe that it is more important for their sons to be educated. Equal education may not happen. We have to tackle that norm. These dimensions are also all linked to each other. For example, the blue petal, caregiving, is linked to the green and light blue petals, economic equality and leadership. If women are the primary caregivers at home, then they may have to shortchange their career and leadership aspirations to the detriment of society. Now, because the six dimensions are all linked, we have to work at all six. A weakness in any dimension will stop the flower from blooming. So where there are equal opportunities in all these areas, then we should also expect to see equal outcomes as well, equal number of men and women in leadership, in the workforce, and as caregivers. Although men may not think too much about gender equality, it actually benefits them greatly too, and I will cover this in my third lecture. Now, now that we've set the scene, the definitions, let's see how Singapore fares in the different dimensions of gender equality. And when we talk about this, we need to look at where we are today compared to the past, as well as how each of the gender equality dimensions compare to each other. So for this, I'm going to be looking at um, the World Economic Forum's Gender Gap Index 2021. What you see on screen is the report on Singapore for 2021. Right, so the uh, graphic there is actually really uh, informative. Singapore is over, overall ranked 54th out of 156 countries. Doesn't sound great, but let's not get too hung up about the ranking. There are many different indices. The actual ranking should be taken with a pinch of salt. This index ranks us worse than others. In the UN index, for instance, we are 12. The disparity is large, really depends on what is measured. What I can say for sure is that Singapore is generally not in the top 10. It's the Nordic countries that constantly take the top spots. What's useful though about this assessment is that it indicates the relative strengths of each country's gender equality dimensions and how close they are to parity. So the figure on your left, you can see that it covers, this index covers four out of six gender equality dimensions in my flower, education, economy, politics, and health. The outermost circle indicates gender parity. So you can see for education and health, we are almost there. We are close to gender parity. For the economy, Singapore still has some ways to go. And um, when it, comes to politics, 
political representation, we are quite far behind. Now, with only three women out of 20 ministers in the cabinet, which is 15%, this isn't too surprising. This report does not include family equality and men's violence against women, uh, but it gives a pretty good idea of where Singapore is in relation to the other aspects and should accord with most people's expectations. For the other two uh, uh, dimensions, I will deal with them in later lectures. Now, Singapore today compared to the past. Let's look at this. The development of Singapore since its independence is, as Peter Ho said in his SR Northern Lectures, without precedent and nothing short of a modern miracle. Women have both benefited from this as well as played a critical role in Singapore's rapid modernization and growth. The education and empowerment of women formed an essential part of Singapore's nation-building strategy, as founding Prime Minister Mr Lee Kuan Yew said in 1975. Societies which do not educate and use half their potential because they are women are those which will be the worst off. So the impressive record of Singapore women's development speaks for itself. There are three stats here. Women's literacy rate rose significantly from a mere 34% in 1957 to 96% in the year 2019. The female labour force participation rate rose from below 20% in 1957 to 61% today. And what's amazing is that the female labor force is actually more highly educated than the male labor force because girls have outpaced boys in education. 41% of women in the labor force are degree holders compared to 37% of men. So, how did we get to where we are today? Many of us have read and watched movies about the suffragettes and the women's lib movement in the West, but how many of us know the Singapore story? We owe a huge debt to the activists who fought for women in Singapore to be treated more fairly and to be safe from violence. And for this reason alone, it's important to tell their stories, and I spent some time on this. Their stories are also insightful. Since the Gender Equality Review was announced, people have asked me, how committed is Singapore to achieving gender equality? Why are they doing the gender equality review now to make gender equality a fundamental value? Does that mean it was never a fundamental value? How then are Singapore women so empowered and educated? These are fantastic questions. And the lessons from the past help us answer some of these questions and also guide us on what we can do to advance gender equality in Singapore. So in terms of uh, the gender equality journey, I've roughly broken this down into uh, the, our women's movement history into four phases. The Medeca period, the men's years, the women return period, and ground up activism. So I'll deal with each one of this going chronological, chronologically. The Medeca period, is where we see the first breakthrough for women's rights in Singapore that led to the enactment of the Women's Charter policies for gender, policies for equal education for girls and inclusion of women in the labor force. 
This period is also an important part of Singapore's road to independence and PAP story of how it came into power in the 1960s. So what Janada said earlier about what was happening in the rest of Asia, we have the Singapore version of this. Right? The main protagonists in this period are the Singapore Council of Women, SCW, not to be confused with SCWO, which is a modern organization today. The SCW was led by Shireen Foster and other women activists. The second protagonist is the PAP Women's League, led by Chan Choi Seong and Ho Pui Chu. Now, let me set the stage. It's post-World War II. The population stands at one million persons, which was actually double its pre-war population. People are mainly crammed into shop houses in the city area or shanty towns. Living conditions are deplorable. Women emerge from the Japanese occupation, eager to contribute to rebuilding Singapore society. They come forward to operate feeding centers and other welfare services. Women also rally to the call of decolonization. For the first time, they join political parties and stand for elections. There are female representatives both in the municipal and legislative councils. It is indeed an exciting time. We see a mushrooming of women's groups. There are community service clubs such as the Chinese Ladies Association, work groups like the Singapore Nurses Association, and religiously inspired groups like the Young, like the young Women's Christian Association, the YWCA. Their focus is on service, welfare, networking, and re recreation, not women's rights. But this changes in 1952, when a woman called Shireen Foster brings together the leaders of the key women's groups to form the Singapore Council of Women, the SCW, to fight for women's rights. Shireen Foster hailed from India. She was an anti-colonial nationalist there and a firebrand, fierce, tireless, the SCW is led by a multi-racial group consisting of women in their 40s and 50s. They include notable names like Elizabeth Choi, Mrs. George Lee, Mrs. Xiao Pekling, Chicha Davis, Che Zahara Binti Nor Muhammad, Vilasani Menon, and of course, Shireen Foster. The SCW decide to focus their energy on a single issue, abolishing polygamy. Polygamy was rife in those times. Husbands set up multiple families they had no means to support. Secondary wives and families were poorly treated and often abandoned by their husbands. SCW actively lobbies the government, community groups, and leaders on the polygamy issue for many years. Finally, it trains its focus on local political parties who become more influential as Singapore gears up for self-government. And of all the political parties, the PAP takes the strongest stand on women's rights. Why? For three reasons. PAP's socialist ideology is the first. Second is the pressure from the PAP Women's League. And the third, it was a political strategy to win the women's votes. Let me elaborate on each of these points. First reason, PAP's socialist ideology. 
The early PAP had strong socialist leanings. Its 1959 political manifesto, The Task Ahead, sets out its position on women's rights. It said, in a full socialist society for which the PAP will work for, all people will have equal rights and opportunities irrespective of sex, race, or religion. There is no place in a socialist society for the exploitation of women. The PAP believes in the principle of equal pay for equal work. So the call to abolish polygamy by the SEW is in line with the PAP's socialist ideology. Second reason, pressure from the PAP's Women's League. This is the other protagonist I talked about. The PAP Women's League plays an important role within the party to push for women's rights. This league is similar to the PAP Women's Wing today. In those days, it is made up of women who are mainly Chinese-educated. The leader of the Women's League is a very capable politician, Chan Choi Xiong, and her comrade, Ho Pui Chu. They do call themselves comrades. And uh, Chan is Chinese-educated, the daughter of a Chi Chong Fan hawker. She is only 23 when she joins the PAP. Between her studies, she helped out at her father's stall. She sees hawkers like her father victimized by corrupt city council officials. She develops a strong desire to eradicate corruption and improve the living conditions of people in Chinatown. Chan's husband is Ong Pang Boon. Some of you may remember he was the former Minister of Labour. And he recalls how determined Chan was in the party. He says she, she took every opportunity at party meetings, conferences, parliament, mass rallies to campaign for women's rights. When the PAP won the elections in 1959 and formed the first PAP government, she was constantly pressing for the government to carry out the manifesto. So Chan Choi Xiong, Ho Pui Chu, and a third Women's League member, Oh Su Chen, got elected to the PAP's Central Executive Committee. They formed 25% of this 12-member CEC, and they drive the PAP women's agenda to end polygamy and to ensure equality of women with men. The growing number of voices demanding for women's rights are part of this larger anti-colonial struggle for democracy and equal rights that Janet has referred to. This was best illustrated in a radio broadcast given by Chan Choi Xiong in 1960, where she said, we must unite the strength of the women in the fight for a democratic, independent, non-communist and united socialist society. Only when this target is achieved can the women be said to be completely liberated. In other words, if women's liberation is not achieved, then neither is real democracy and equality. It's really progressive. And now the third reason why the PAP um, adopted this uh, poly polygamy call and was so pro-women. It was a strategy to win the women's vote. And this might be the most important reason. The 1959 elections is the first time that voting is compulsory. Before this, few women voted. The PAP calculating that the women's votes in this election would be critical 
decide to include women's emancipation as part of its election manifesto. As Lee Kuan Yew later remarked in his memoirs, this strategy and the inclusion of five female candidates in the landmark election were really effective to distinguish the PAP from other parties. And the strategy pays off. The PAP wins a landslide victory. Lee Kuan Yew is elected as Singapore's first Prime Minister. A total of five women are elected, four from PAP and one from an opposition party. Women are given equal education, and then the government divides schools into morning and afternoon sessions to double the capacity of schools to take in girls. So it happens immediately. And women start going out to work in droves. And the SCW pressed the PAP to fulfill its promise of ending polygamy after the elections. And the PAP lives up to this promise by introducing the Women's Charter. Now, one thing to note here, because I'll be talking about it later, the PAP did not include gender equality in the constitution or pledge, unlike its reference to equality regardless of race, language, or religion, right, which appears in our pledge. So I'll talk about this later. Now, let me first say a few words about the Women's Charter. This is today still one of the most progressive laws on women's rights to have ever been enacted in Southeast Asia. And at that time, it was considered revolutionary, not just because it outlawed polygamy, but also because it did away with the English doctrine of coverture, which stripped women of their rights to sign contracts and own property when they got married. In speaking up for the bill, and listen to the rhetoric of Chan Choi Seong, who did not mince her words, she said, women in our society are like Pieces of meat put on the table for men to slice. The PAP government has made a promise. We cannot allow this inequality in the family to exist in this country. We will liberate women from the hands of the oppressor. And with the passing of this legislation, women can contribute their part to the country. So the Women's Charter was passed on 24th May 1961. The female MPs saw the Charter as the first step, just the first step, towards equality. And we celebrate the 60th anniversary of the Women's Charter on 24th May 2021. This is also the date that I've picked for my third and final lecture, which I hope you will join me for. And together, we can all toast our drink to the brave women, Shireen Foster, Chan Choi Seong, Ho Poi Chu, and many others who set the rights of Singapore women off to a very good start. What are the lessons to be learned from the Madaka period? First, that women activists in politics and civil society play a critical role in advancing women's rights and gender equality. We see this again later. The early wins were only possible because of the relentless lobbying by female PAP activists and the SWC. The SWC took 10 years to outlaw polygamy. Major change takes time and persistence. So it is important to have activists and groups that can carry out sustained advocacy in and outside politics. A side note here, I'm not sure how many of you have heard this history before, but I certainly had not heard it you know, when I was uh, younger 
And it's only when I joined the women's movement that I've heard it because it is not often told in the Singapore story. So if this has piqued your interest, do Google and find out more. And you know, there are actually many other uh, women who have remarkable stories. The second lesson that we can learn from this is that women voters have power. The PAP played their cards right in the 1959 election to court new female voters. Fast forward to last year, general election 2020, we saw the emergence of more female candidates in all parties and manifestos that included gender issues in a significant way. Post-elections, we see parties setting up women's wings and launching initiatives that specifically target women. This trend is going to continue in an increasingly competitive political climate. Parties that pay attention to and understand women's needs and explicitly adopt positions that support these needs will find favour with female voters. And the third lesson. Equal opportunities for women to be educated and work are key to their liberation. Without this, we cannot even begin to talk about gender equality. And in this respect, the PAP's economic pragmatism served women well. Educating women was both good for the economy and essential to women's development. The empowerment of women in the early 60s became really important when Singapore was rudely ejected from the Federation of Malaysia in 1965. And at that point, with human capital as its only assets, thankfully, the women were already participating in the economy and they were critical to our survival. If the story ended here, you might think this is a pretty good women's lip story. Unfortunately, the trajectory of the Medeco period did not continue in the next chapter of her, her story. In the next period, we see what happens when the men in white lead the way without any women in this party, in the party. And I'm calling this period the men's years. This is the period 1971 to 1983. Now, with the passing of the Women's Charter, the, the SCW lost its sense of mission. Mission achieved, you know, polygamy outlawed, they lost their sense of mission. Shireen Foster left Singapore in 1961, support for SCW dwindled, and it was deregistered in 1971. On the PAP side, the big split in PAP where many MPs left the PAP to join the Barisan Socialists caused the MP to lose half of its female MPs. And then Chan Choi Siong retired from politics in 1970. Not much is said about this, we don't really know why. Leaving an all-male parliament. This is the all-male parliament, very male. And uh, the Women's League was dissolved in 1975. Uh, parliament would not see another female MP for 14 years until 1984. So, without the moderating influence of the women politicians, without a women's movement, we see the unfiltered patriarchal instincts of the all-male parliament and cabinet coming to the fore. And this results in the, most, in the making of the most sexist policies that the PAP government has ever made. These policies adversely affected women 
and families and serve to reinforce rather than dismantle patriarchal values. Thankfully, all of these have been re reversed, but not before they left their mark on society. So let's have a look at two of the policies that were passed during the men's years. Policy one, the quota on female medical students. In 1979, a policy was introduced to limit the number of female medical students to one third of every cohort. The government considered medical education for women a poor return on investment. It felt that many female doctors would leave the profession to have babies upon marriage and training someone to be a doctor was a rather costly affair. So Dr. To Chin Chai, uh, so that's why they had the one third quota. And Dr. To Chin Chai, the health minister, also said in parliament that it was very difficult for a woman to be a good doctor because she also had to be a wife and a mother besides performing night duty in government hospitals. So this policy resulted in less qualified male students being admitted to NUS medicine over more qualified female students. Many of the female students went overseas to study and some never returned to Singapore. Policies from this era had long-term consequences. For example, a 2020 article in the Singapore Medical Association's newsletter said that, one, that the one-third quota was a major reason that the National Healthcare Group had only 27% women in its senior leadership posts. Policy two, medical benefits for families of civil servants. In the 80s, the government passed a policy which extended medical benefits to the families of male civil servants. The same treatment was not given to female civil servants. Reason? Too expensive. So, in, and in 1993, Finance Minister Richard Hu reaffirmed this policy on a different basis. This justification is even more problematic. He said, the policy preserves the st social structure by supporting the principle of husband as head of the household. It is the husband's responsibility to look after the family's needs, including the medical needs. This is how our society is structured. It would be unwise to tamper with this structure. Times have changed much, as you can see. I don't think ministers today would be able to get away with such sexist statements. Med school quotas and civil servants' medical benefits are just some of the discriminatory policies that were made by the PAP government in the men's years. There were others. How does one reconcile these discriminatory policies and the zero presence of female MPs with the PAP's manifesto, the task ahead, to work for a society where all people will have equal rights and opportunities, irrespective race or religion. One view is that the PAP government started off with aspirations of gender equality, but abandoned them along the way when the women left the party. Another view is this, that the government's support for women's empowerment were motivated by economic and political imperatives, not by any intrinsic belief in gender equality. PAP's economic strategies were indeed favourable to women, but it should not be mistaken for a principal commitment to gender equality.
Now, whichever way you see it, it is clear that the men in white were men of their times. They wanted to develop women and men to be economically productive. But where gender was concerned, their ideal, or where gender was concerned, their ideal of women as the good housewife whose job it was to care for the family and support their husband's career served as their paradigm. And this second perspective is supported by some later statements of Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew, including this one in 1994, where Mr. Lee said, attractive and intelligent young ladies should go to finishing colleges so that they will be marvelous helpers of their husband's career. One might argue that the government itself maybe did not have patriarchal values, but it was just not confident that it could shift patriarchal norms that existed in society. And there are some statements in history that suggest that. However, we should remember that social engineering is something that the Singapore government is comfortable to do and is good at. As Mr. Lee Kuan Yew said in 1987, I am often accused of interfering in the private lives of citizens. Yes, if I did not, and I had not done that, then we wouldn't be here today. And I say without the slightest remorse that we, would not, we wouldn't be here and we wouldn't have made economic progress if we had not intervened on very personal matters. Who your neighbour is, how you live, the noise you make, how you spit, or what language you use. We decide what is right, never mind what the people think. So looking back at all this, I think that the government would have been able to work towards changing the patriarchal mindsets of its people if they had that inclination. Governments that are less paternalistic than the Singapore government, such as Sweden, have done so. We will now move on to the next phase of her story, which covers the period from 1984 to 2010. This period sees the return of women politicians and activists. So I call this period the women return period. Within politics, PAP recruits four women politicians. Dr. Dixie Tan, Dr. Aileen Wong, Mrs. Yu Fu Yishun are elected in 1984 after a 14-year lull. Dr. Seed Aimee is elected in 1988. These women set up the PAP Women's Wing in 1989. Dr. Aileen Wong and Mrs. Yufu are particularly active in pushing for women's rights, but they are a small minority and none of them are ever given a cabinet appointment. So their influence is more limited. On the civil society side, things start to get active again. In 1980, leaders from various women's business and community groups come together to form the Singapore Council of Women's Organizations. SCWO is set up as an umbrella body of women's groups to advance the status of women. And then, in 1984, the government launches its highly controversial program, the Graduate Mothers Scheme, to incentivize graduate mothers to have more children. At the same time, they introduce the Small Families Incentive Scheme to disincentivize non-graduate mothers from having more than two children, and this included paying them $10,000. These eugenic programs upset many women and led to the formation of AWARE, 
the Association of Women for Action and Research, as a women's rights research and advocacy group. So with women activists back in the picture, the campaign for women's rights is reignited. And this time, the burning issue is family violence. AWARE's helpline shows that family violence is prevalent, yet the laws are inadequate. When the police are called in, they can only stop the fight if it's still going on, but they can't actually arrest unless there are broken bones, a eye, ear, or limb hanging out, what the law calls grievous hurt. The police have no powers otherwise. AWARE and SCWO and, uh, come together to campaign for more protection against family violence. Dr. Kamaljit Soin, the moderator of this event, and probably the most well-known women's rights champion of our time, is appointed as a nominated MP. She reaches out to me one day and a few lawyers, a few other lawyers, and she says, I would like to introduce a family violence bill. Will you help me to draft this? Malaysia has just passed the family violence bill. I am game, and we are off. These are pre-internet days, so it's not so easy to find precedents. The Family Violence Bill is introduced in Parliament in 1995, and this is, the only, this is only the second private member's bill to be presented in Parliament. One of the main challenges to the bill is the argument that stronger laws may hurt rather than help families. But the ground support for this bill is strong because of all the public education, the library talks, the exhibitions that women's rights NGOs have organized over the last 10 years. Remember, this is pre-internet. I remember the second reading well. Dr. Soin steps up to the podium. I'm up there looking down from the gallery. She gives a brave and stirring speech. There is a robust debate on the bill. And the result, Parliament rejects the family violence bill. The government says the issue is not so prevalent, we need a separate bill to deal with it, but nevertheless, all is not lost. It's a victory for women as the government comes up with an alternative proposal to amend the Women's Charter to strengthen the Personal Protection Order Regime, PPO. The amended Women's Charter 1996 contains many of the provisions that were in the Family Violence Bill. For example, it expands the definition of family violence to include non-physical violence, and it extends protection to a wider range of family members. Most importantly, it empowers the police to act upon the breach of a PPO without there being grievous hurt. What's great is that the government goes much further than just amending the law. It sets up a network of family service centres and specialist centres to support family violence survivors. It links these centres to the police, the hospitals, the family court. And this family violence network has been an important part of Singapore's ongoing strategy to address family violence. So, what's the lesson here? Again, we see a repeat of the a previous pattern, women's rights groups raise early warning signs about a social problem. The issue gains traction with the public. Within the political system, women activists, in this case, Dr. Soin as an MP, pushes for legal change, and change happens after about 10 years of sustained advocacy. This pattern of change is actually not ideal to move the needle on gender equality. It's unreliable, being dependent on the presence and sustained work of a few brave women activists or NGOs. 
to raise individual issues. And at that time, most of us were volunteers. Progress comes in spurts, followed by long intervals of non-activity and periods of backsliding. A strong women's movement is necessary, but not sufficient to ensure progress. What we need for more consistent progress is an explicit commitment by the government to gender equality, a commitment with accountability. Do we have this today? Many of you, if you've been following the story so far, might think not. But something rather unexpected happens in 1995. Seemingly out of the blue, in 1995, the government ratifies the UN Convention to end all forms of discrimination against women, or CEDAW. The pressure to sign did not come from the women's activists in Singapore. It came from outside Singapore. Singapore signed CEDAW to be a good global citizen. At least two-thirds of the countries in the world had signed at least one or other human rights treaty. Singapore had signed none by 1995. And our presence on the world stage was growing. It was important for Singapore to fit in and show its support for the UN human rights system. And of all the human rights conventions, the treaties on women and children were the easiest for Singapore to adopt. We were already compliant with many of the provisions in these two treaties, and it was a lot more difficult for us to sign treaties on civil and political rights. Now, the ratification of CEDAW is really significant because by signing, Singapore commits to protecting and promoting women's rights and to address negative gender norms and stereotypes. And the Singapore government generally is really good about trying to keep its convention obligations. Every five years, the government reports to the UN CEDAW committee on what it has done to reduce gender discrimination in Singapore. Singapore has gone through five cycles of reporting to the UN. It has made good progress with each cycle. For example, by the second round of re reporting in 2007, the state had reversed all of the sexist policies that it enacted in the men's years. Singapore NGOs are encouraged to and do participate in the CEDAW process by submitting reports to the UN on Singapore's compliance with CEDAW. And I remember going to Geneva a few years ago to actually make this, uh, these submissions. The UN committee, after hearing the government and the NGO submissions, then issues recommendations to the government, advising them on the further steps it should take to reduce discrimination against women. So CEDAW has provided the government and NGOs with a really great process for ensuring that Singapore makes consistent progress towards eliminating gender discrimination. The CEDAW process has contributed to many positive changes in policy, including the protection, of the protect, uh, the, the protection from Harassment Act, Prevention of Human Trafficking Act, and removal of marital rape immunity. However, this does not mean that gender equality has become a fundamental value of Singapore society. When we think of values associated with Singapore, what do we think of? Words like meritocracy, multiculturalism, pragmatism pop up in our heads. Few people would associate gender equality with Singapore the way they do with the Nordic countries. Because even though we signed CEDAW, 
it has not the government has not been very active in tackling the sexist norms that lie at the heart of the gender equality flower. However, the next phase of her story, which I'm calling ground-up activism, changes things a little and sets the context for the government to initiate the gender equality review. So this period is 2011 to uh, current. Social media is the, uh, has ch changed the way that we live, including the way that people do activism and social justice. There is no specific event to mark the start of this current phase where ground-up activism is enabled and powered by Facebook, Insta, YouTube, and Twitter. The year that I have chosen as the start year 2011 is somewhat arbitrary and subjective. It is the year of Slut Walk Singapore. Slut Walk Singapore, provocative, bold, somewhat un-Singaporean. I am not sure how many of you have heard of it or remember it. The name stuck in my mind, as did the cause to organize a march in Singapore to end slut-shaming and victim-blaming of sexual assault survivors. And this Singapore march was part of a global response to a Canadian policeman's remark that women should avoid dressing like sluts in order to not be victimized. 50 other slut walk marches were being held across the globe. It was remarkable. One comment by a Canadian policeman whose name no one remembers inspired 50 protest marches in the world, including a Singapore protest in Hong Lim Park. Of course, I was impressed by the confidence and the gung-ho spirit of the very young activists. They were mainly in their early 20s, I think. But what was more amazing to me was how these activists, with no prior experience, could, in record time, relying mainly on their social media posts going viral, organize a globally inspired event which ended up being covered in the Wall Street Journal. This article was titled, Slut Walk Singapore Puts Feminism in Focus. I don't even think that any of AWARE's campaigns with 35 years of activism under its belt has been such a feature of the Wall Street Journal. So this, to me, signified the start of the exciting new era of social justice activism. Many of these campaigns, because they are responding to a particular moment in time, don't last long. Slut Walk SG lasted two years and disappeared after that. But they are certainly effective in provoking new conversations and ideas, engaging the community, and are often precursors to future initiatives and campaigns that may have more lasting impact. Social media, the high education levels, and increased exposure of younger Singaporeans to global conversations have resulted in gender equality and feminism becoming widely discussed topics in Singapore. Established groups like AWARE, HOME, and United Women have also become very adept at using social media to generate public support for their causes. For example, in the last few years, AWARE has effectively used comics, videos, podcasts, online theatre, online petitions to garner support for its causes. Some groups are just 
exist just virtually, for example, beyond the hijab, builds purely online communities to create awareness of Muslim women's stories, issues, true stories. Many young activists learned about feminism through Insta. They engage actively with feminist posts on a daily basis on topics ranging from rape myths and sexual concern to workplace discrimination and migrant spouses. Last year alone, AWARE's posts across all its social media platforms had a reach of more than 10.6 million. Global movements like hashtag MeToo have also had a sharp and a long-lasting impact on sexual assault and harassment in Singapore. AWARE's Sexual Assault Care Centre experienced a 79% increase in calls right after hashtag MeToo started, and the number of calls to the centre remains today at this high level mark, high water mark. We have also seen the private sector, especially MNCs in Singapore, embrace gender diversity in a big way. They do this because gender diversity improves recruitment and the bottom line, and it makes the company look good. Companies set up women's groups and empower them to lead the company's gender diversity agenda in their organizations. These are then publicized on the company's website and social media pages. And most larger companies have jumped on the bandwagon to celebrate International Women's Day in a very public way. In short, in the last 10 years or so, we have seen a democratization of the feminist agenda. These are no longer topics that fall within the exclusive domain of feminist activists and experts. Sexism, misogyny, sexual violence, intersectionality, unconscious bias, gender quotas, power imbalances, power, motherhood penalty, gender pay gap have become mainstream topics for social justice activists, corporate warriors, and ordinary people. These are now seen as everyday problems that people encounter in their workplaces, homes, schools, communities. There are also things that we can talk about openly. Social media has given us the language to pass and discuss these topics. And because of all of this, norms have shifted. What used to be commonplace, boorish behavior is no longer tolerated and offenders can expect to be called out on this. Nowadays, bystanders are expected to play a role in ensuring environments that are respectful, inclusive and safe and it is against this backdrop that the government launched the Gender Equality Review late last year. On 20th September 2020, Mr. Shamogam, Minister of Law and Home Affairs, announced that the government would undertake a comprehensive review of issues affecting women to make gender equality a fundamental value in Singapore society. The original motivation for this review was to tackle gender norms that give rise to sexual offences. In the words of Mr. Shamogam, the objective is to cause gender equality to be imprinted deeply into our collective consciousness. Every boy and girl must grow up imbibing the value of gender equality. They need to be taught from a very early age that boys and girls are to be treated equally and very importantly, with respect. Wow. Women's rights and gender equality activists are cheering on this progressive initiative. For us working in this area, we were actually taken by surprise. How come? Why now? However, upon deeper reflection, 
of how society, how far society has come in the last 10 years, perhaps we should not be so surprised. The time has come for gender equality in Singapore. Society wants this, and the government has responded by initiating the Gender Equality Review. Thus, it is not surprising that the response to the many conversations, the many women's conversations that the government has organized has been excellent. Women want more, they want to go deeper. Many men are supportive too, as they know that it will make it easier for them to be active fathers. There is much to be gained from this government-led initiative. As Minister Shanmugam rightly pointed out, gender equality will reduce sexual assault by addressing the root cause of sexual offences. It will alleviate the caregiving burden that holds women back in the workplace. Gender equality is also good for business, it's good for the economy, and it gives people equal, equal opportunity to fulfil their potential, regardless of gender. Changing mindsets and implementing more gender equality practices has to be a whole-of-nation project and a long-term one. But it certainly cannot be achieved without the government taking the lead to set up the infrastructure for this to happen. Just as women's education and empowerment were essential for our success in the first half century, in the last half century, gender equality will be absolutely essential in the next 50 years to deal with the critical issues of our day. Low fertility rates, aging population, economic inequality, and the sexualized world that we live in. I will talk more about this in my next two lectures. I will end my first lecture with three broad points for the gender equality review, drawing from the lessons of her, her story. The gender equality review will culminate in a white paper that sets out a roadmap for making gender equality a fundamental value for Singapore. Many people have expressed hope that the white paper will not just be fluffy words that express nice sentiments. They want to see substance and commitment. I personally would like to see a white paper that is bold, visionary, substantive, and long-term. It should set out a clear and comprehensive plan that sets out the steps that the government will take to role models, signal, set in place laws, policies and programs to achieve its objectives. The white paper should also encourage and spell out what community, companies and families can do to promote gender equality in Singapore. Like the CEDAW mechanism, which has worked so well to advance gender equality, it is important to build in reviews and measures to ensure that we are on track. Second point. In the past, women's rights and gender equality NGOs have been the driving force of gender equality in Singapore. They are very important stakeholders for the government to engage as they have deep knowledge and experience about the gender issues that their communities face. They also have extensive reach to the people who strongly champion gender equality as well as those who are affected by sexism and misogyny. They already have programs that are trying to educate people on gender equality, boys and girls, men and women. So there's no need to reinvent uh, the wheel in, in some situations. It is important to collaborate and for the government to reach out both to individuals and NGOs, bigger NGOs like AWARE, PPIS and SCWO, and smaller groups, even some unregistered ones, who work, deal with niche issues, 
like groups that deal with LBT issues, Muslim rights issues, sexual violence issues, low-income women. This will deepen the state's understanding of the issues on the ground and very, and lastly, in, in relation to this point of stakeholders, men should be involved in this project, not just as male allies, but in their own right as the other side of gender equality. It's important to not just have a few men attend women's conversations. It is important that we convene men's only conversations to allow them to share their perspective in a safe space and to have initiatives for men as well. The third point is about the constitution and the pledge. Even though the PAP's 1959 manifesto, the task ahead, referred to equality regardless of sex, this was not included in the constitution or the pledge. We now have a chance to change this. One of the most visible and substantive actions that the government can take to make gender equality a fundamental value is to add gender equality into the Singapore constitution and our pledge. Currently, it doesn't appear. And if gender equality is to be established as a fundamental value in our society, it should be reflected in these two most authoritative expressions of Singapore's values. Imagine if every day, girls and boys recited, we, the citizens of Singapore, pledge ourselves as one united people, regardless of race, language, religion, or gender. Gender equality would quickly be imprinted in the collective consciousness of all these young minds. For the Constitution, there are two ways of doing this. The first is to amend Article 12.2 of the Constitution by adding gender as a prohibited basis for discrimination. The second, to add a new clause that is aspirational and non-actionable. In my view, and as a lawyer, I prefer the first option as I think that would be better aligned with the state's inten intention to make gender equality a fundamental value of our society. Start with the leaders. Such an amendment will ensure that the government and our laws do not discriminate on the basis of gender. The UN CEDAW committee has regularly recommended that Singapore include protections against gender discrimination in its constitution. 85% of all constitutions in the world have explicit prohibitions against gender discrimination. All new constitutions enacted since 2000 in the world have included this protection. If it is not feasible to amend Article 12.2, there should, at the very least, be an aspirational provision on gender equality to signify Singapore's commitment to gender equality. Even if it is not binding on the state, an aspirational section carries a strong symbolic value. Symbols are important when we're trying to shift mindsets. So this brings me to the end of the first lecture. What a journey from the 50s to where we are today. I hope that you've enjoyed the lecture and leave feeling informed about the past and hopeful about the future. Women in Singapore are highly educated and empowered, but we don't have equality yet. The substantive issues that I will deal with to further this conversation are support for caregiving and equality at home, which is my next lecture on 14th May, women's leadership 
men and masculinity and male violence against women will be covered in my lecture on the 24th May. The road to equality is long and arduous, but it curves in the right direction. I feel confident about the Gender Equality Review. The ground is so ripe for this, and the government is doing the right thing at the right time. And now I look forward to hearing your comments and taking your questions to the first lecture. I'm so pleased that I will be doing this with Dr. Kamaljit Soin, who is a dear friend, mentor, and one of the sharpest women's rights activists that I know, even at 79. Thank you. Hello, everyone. It's a great pleasure for me to be here today and I'm very glad that so many of you have tuned in. I look forward to your participation. As Karina has mentioned, she and I go a long way back. I've known her for 30 odd years and she has become a great leader of both women and men. She advocates passionately for gender equality, but in a way, that inspires others to join her. Kudos to that. She is the feminist daughter that I never had. <laughs> but I have three feminist sons. Since I'm talking of feminism, I would like to clarify what feminism means to me. It is quite simple, really. A feminist is someone who accords equal respect and consideration to all sexes. And so I'm sure there are many of you in this audience who also consider yourself as feminists. We have heard an excellent and insightful and lecture from Karina. She has delivered the first installment of her three-part magnus, magnus opus. And I salute her for her content, clarity, and delivery. Before the virtual floor is open to everyone in the audience, I would like to ask Corina the first question. Corina, how do you think the government and women's organizations can work together to, to advance gender equality in Singapore? Um, <clears throat> sorry, is my mic on? Yes. So I think there are several phases to the, the whole uh, gender equality review. The first phase is the consultation, which it would be great if uh, there were opportunities uh, for the women's rights groups, gender equality groups, and not just women's groups, but also some men's groups, right, uh, to actually be able to provide in-depth feedback to the government. A lot of the conversations now are more focused on individuals, which I think is really fantastic. So what I love about this initiative is that it is a people's movement. And as I said, you know, the last 10 years, it has become, a, gender equality has become a people's issue. So it's great that the government is so actively uh, consulting with the ground. Um, but of course, the groups that have been working in this area, they've been working in this for many, many years. We hear thousands of stories, and we have been thinking for a long time about what the solutions should be. So there should be opportunities to actually have that you know, in-depth discussion. 
And then maybe the, I'm, I'm wondering whether it might be possible for the government to set up some sort of a multi-group uh, committee uh, where different organizations will be represented. And you know, I'll take, take the gender equality flower and maybe we can divide up into subgroups uh, so that there will be working groups going forward, right? And it becomes the work of not just the government, and the accountability is not just the government, but really it is the stakeholders in this area that already have such a big interest in this that will work with the government to take it forward. The other thing that I think, and this is not so much groups, but um, I see a lot of uh, companies that say, okay, you know, we're setting up a women's group, and then when the women's group wants to do something, and they ask for some funding, there's none. So I think there needs to be also resources that actually go to make, to realize this, right? It's a very ambitious idea. How do we make gender equality a fundamental value? You know, collective consciousness imbibed in everybody. So um, it, needs to, it needs to be long-term and needs to have resources. So if there could be some sort of funding Right, where individuals and groups can tap on this to further, right? We, we have quite a few programs as aware. We have birds and bees that are for parents. We have sexual assault first responder training that actually we can't do enough of because we don't have enough uh, staffing to, to do more of this. But if there were more resources, certainly we can do more of these sexual assault first responder trainings for which we have a wait list of 200 people, right? So there are all these existing, ongoing programs, which I think would be great to uh, work with government on. Thank you. Yeah. Well, finally, the audience, you know, you've been waiting so patiently, and we will turn to your input and your questions, please. Uh, the first question that I see is to do with societal norms, and it's from, from Ms. Sai Sin Liang and uh, Mr. Kristen Mark James Paul. And the question is, do you think that the lack of female representation in government during the 70s and 80s was caused more by societal norms rather than by the government? Where do you think these societal norms come from and why do they continue to persist? Mm -hmm. um... Of course, the government, I mean, it's hard to draw a line between the two, but uh, I think the government, like I said, they were men of their times. The society wasn't so much into, you know, just ordinary people were not so much into gender equality. That, I think during those days, I suppose, uh, people, aside from the SCW, right, and there was that burning issue. Um, so. There wasn't all this conversation and there were no women's rights groups. And so I, I don't think this was a big deal in society, right? But the, you're asking whether or not the fact that there were not more. I think, you know, who gets into government is, is up to the government to recruit and to look for specific talent, right? If a, today's government is looking for women, they actually say, we want to recruit more women. It's hard to get more women. At, in those days, I don't think this was their priority because they didn't have that 
uh, those values of trying to have equal representation or some representation even, right? And also, I think if I may add to that, the PAP was the, the only party, the only effective party at that time. There wasn't much political competition. And as you said quite rightly, the PAP that went out to look for their political candidates, and obviously being men of their times, they missed out on the women. Yeah. So it was just not societal norms, I think, that held women yeah. back. It was the lack of search yeah. for women. I mean, it was interesting, and you know, that's why I mentioned uh, Chan Choi Xiong's background. She was not really so highly educated, and uh, Ho Pui Chu was, in fact, a seamstress who could, couldn't speak English. Uh, so it wasn't so much then, you know, that you needed to have very high academic credentials. It was, I think, if you went out to look for, if there, if there is one Chan Choi Xiong and Ho Pui Chu, you could find others who were passionate about nation building, uh, women, who, to be on the party, if you looked. All right, now there's a historical question, and this is going to be a little bit hard, I think, from Mr. Chandra Mohan Nair. Mm. And he asks, did other political parties in the 50s and 60s also have manifestos to get women to have equal rights? If so, what are the details and what did they fight for? Uh, as far as I know, they didn't have manifestos that included women's rights. And uh, that's why PAP was so successful, right? It was very clever that they actually... Uh, you know, these parties did say we should have women's rights, but they didn't do anything about it. So you can see this in some of the debates on the Women's Charter, because some of these parties did actually speak up and, you know, the PAP would say, but what did you do for women's rights? They did nothing, right? So uh, PAP certainly was way more progressive than any other party in this regard. And uh, I, I think from my reading of it, I, I think the uh, activists did go to the other parties, but they said they, it, the time was not right yet to have uh, uh, yeah. you know, in their manifesto issues mm. to do with women. So I think from what I remember, yeah. that's true too. Now there's another, a question on the Gender Equality Review by Lee Yokman. What would make AWARE think that Gender Equality Review is a success? Mm, that's a really good question. Yes, very good question. Yeah. Uh, so when we look at the, okay, so you have the petals, right? So you want some movement in each of these petals. You really want to try to change the norms as well. Now, norms are harder to measure, but a good one is actually the World Values Survey, right? Which has been carried out uh, by IPS uh, recently. That was one, I think it came out in 2021. And we have seen, right? Gender equality is already, is already shifting you see that young people have really quite different norms. So that's one that you can measure, right, that actually uh, that has been some change. I think a really good measurement would be if there are more uh, stay-at-home dads, right? Uh, so that probably can be measured. If there are more stay-at-home dads, uh, that, and I, I, I doing, for, for my research, I spoke to three and it wasn't so easy to find them. Uh, what they've told me, I will share in the third lecture, it has not been easy for them as dads, right? Uh, they love spending time with their kids, and I, my heart goes out to them because 
I feel I should be fighting for their rights and you know we, we are in doing this we are so I think that's a really good measurement because once the dads you know fathers feel like okay you know I can be the primary caregiver maybe not stay at home dad but the primary caregiver then uh, women can actually uh, do more in the workplace they have more choices right. yeah and Corina I mean besides biologically giving birth there are nothing the other ability to look after a child is not controlled by genes it's yeah. just you know the societal norms yeah. so you're right if yeah. you have that in order for this to happen though right for the ultimate goal is you know do will will uh caregiving and i think this is one of the biggest norms uh that's hard to tackle right now um but it's already changing a little uh will can we come to a stage where both parties are seen as caregivers as mm. well as breadwinners, mm. right? Which is one model. And then if the whoever decides that they want to be split the roles, then the person who is the caregiver is not disadvantaged, right? And is respected regardless of gender. Uh, but a lot of things need to happen in order to, to achieve that. Now, another interesting question, and from Ms. Gillian Ko herself. What are the barriers to inserting the gender equality clause in Article 12.2 in the Constitution? Right up your alley, Karina? <laughs> yeah, uh, what are the barriers? Okay, like I said, 12.2 is not an anti-discrimination act. It really is about, uh, it's a clause that will be binding on the government. So it means that the government cannot have any laws that are not gender equal, right? So you can think of some policies and laws already. The Women's Charter, uh, provision on maintenance, it's not equal, right? Uh, only men with disability are entitled to get uh, uh, maintenance from their wives. So that and cash yield, right? Which women's groups really fought for and said, you shouldn't be charging us uh, more premiums. So those things they would have to review. And you can carve these out, but actually you have to do this review. So it doesn't have to happen tomorrow. You can say we want to try to move towards a gender uh, neutral and you know, gender equal state where all laws and policies are not in any way differentiated. Right? So that needs to happen. Okay, I think we'll get on to the yeah. next question. They're quite but, a few. but it is binding on the government. And also, you know, the good thing about this is that in future, then we are protected against any discriminatory or differential laws, except on, you know, really good grounds, right? That will be harder to justify. Um, the next one is to do with the social media activism and comes from Nandini Balakrishnan. And the mm. question is, the rise in social media activism for gender empowerment has helped to raise awareness among many young Singaporeans. Do you think such online conversations can help to facilitate greater offline changes as well? Absolutely. Yeah, in fact, I think, you know, we always say for our activism, we meet the people where they are. And the most, uh, the most, uh, Progressive people on, on in, in the area of gender equality and any social activism, they are online, right? So how do we? How can we reach out to them in order to actually uh, 
spread the message to the people who are not online. And if we are looking long-term at the younger generation, then we maybe we, we don't target the people who are older, who you know are not going to be so interested in this. We target the young parents, uh, the young adults that are going to be more interested. And also, I think institutions are really important places to make sure that they set the environment right, uh, to promote gender equality. So I would say the younger population, all our institutions, right, uh, whatever, whichever institutions that is really affecting how people see things, do things, you know, companies, schools, that there's a lot to do. Yeah, but don't forget the older people, the mother-in-law, the mother, the grandmother, very important too. And we could target them through movies, mm -mm. films, you know, television. So they don't forget people of my generation. I'm thinking <laughs> that the young people will find ways to actually talk to their parents and, you know, the next gener the older generation and bring them around. Right. Yeah. But yes, I mean, these are all conversations that we can have with the young people. Like, who are the people that you know you would, you have some influence over? And it can start with very simple things, just like equal chores for yes. boys and girls, right? We we roster based on age and uh, but not sex. All right. Now another good question uh, in the area of law from uh, uh, Mr. Nantpal Tambaya. Is there any chance that we will get an equal pay law for equal work law in Singapore? Is, is there any chance? I think that? that's a very high hanging fruit. <laughs> I think actually anti-discrimination might be a lower hanging fruit and we certainly need one, you know, because there's, this, is, this is a life problem, right? We, uh, we run aware has a workplace harassment and discrimination advisory. We had 200 cases last year and about a quarter of these were to do with maternity discrimination, even though we have protection against uh, maternity discrimination. But there, you know, there are very specific laws that we have to protect, like you cannot sack someone when they, they are on maternity. But there are so many other ways, right? So actually you need a general discrimination law. Age is going to be a big thing. Right, so I, I would say that um, that's probably easier. And I think the other thing about gender pay is that it's harder, it's slightly more difficult to try to measure. Uh, so I would say uh, that might, for me, would be a second level. Just his, casting our minds historically, I think the three tasks that the PAP's first manifesto in 1952 yeah. promised was to abolish polygamy, to give equal pay for equal work, yes and to declare uh, March the 8th as an international holiday, uh, declare March the 8th as a holiday. So it looks like we have only achieved one so far. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, the next question on education. Sorry, on the equal pay, I think what can be done though, I mean, the progressive wage and a lot of the, um, of the jobs that women do are really lowly paid. And they're not on this progressive wage um, ladder, right? The PWM. So I think that would be something to fight for, right? So uh, the the uh, I think they're going into retail, but um, 
the which was teachers, uh, some of the other more female dominated nurses. I think they should all be on the health assistance, right? Anyone that is in healthcare, they should be on the, the wage ladder. Yeah, but I suppose what uh, he was referring to is equal pay for equal work. You know, mm -hmm. that sort of. Yeah, yeah. but but uh, I mean, uh, let's. I mean, I'm still. I feel that. For gender the, equality. the difference there is six percent. Six percent, right? Yes. So six percent, you know, is, is uh, the total un, uh, unadjusted is sixteen percent. Hmm. But that's because women give up work yes. or they take different jobs, right? That's why you get sixteen percent. But when you talk about equal work, that difference is six percent. Yes. Right. So for me, it's not as important, right? There's, everything's important, but if I have to rank this, I would say anti-discrimination one, make sure that uh, the women's jobs, the ones that they've dominated in and very lowly paid, uh, childcare and, and elder care, that they are put on the progressive wage model as quickly as possible. Right, right. Uh, we'll go on to the next one now. Uh, could you talk a bit about the evolution of the Women's Charter Act over the years? It is sometimes called a woman's bill. Does it live up to its name? And that's from Sien Lao. Uh, does it live up to its name? So that's really interesting because one of the big criticisms when it was first introduced in Parliament was that, wow, this is a very elevated name. It's a women's charter, but you're only you know, dealing with polygamy. Right, uh, and then you know, making sure that people can, women can sign contracts, etc. So the criticism was that how come it doesn't deal with equal pay or making sure that women have equal opportunities in the workplace? So does it live up to its name? I think it is misnamed, and I, I feel strongly that we really should change the name, Women's Charter to Family Charter. It is far more accurate. It is, you know, what's in the Women's Charter? 90% of the provisions are about family law. But men, you know, when you ask men, uh, a lot of men uh, actually object to gender equality on two grounds. One, NS. Two, that you have laws that protect women but not men. But the Women's Charter, really, it has that name because historically it abolished polygamy. It doesn't give equal rights, you know, in the workplace or anywhere else. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think it, it's the, the right name for, for that charter. Yes, and it gives the wrong impression that women have something yeah. that men don't have. Well, I'm afraid it's time to oh end gosh, this lively okay. discussion and say a big thank you to all of you for your meaningful input. Apologies for the fact that not all comments and questions were addressed, but hopefully the next two lectures will provide more enlightenment on many of these issues. So please come back then. Now allow me to close this session with a few words. Gender equality does not mean giving something to women by taking something away from men. It is not a zero-sum game, but instead the two parts add up to more than one whole. That's why we must strive for gender equality. It ensures people-centered gender, ensures people-centered sustainable development. Now, we cannot have Singapore operating at half strength. 
we cannot waste half the brain, half the inspiration, half the beauty and joy, and half the human resources of Singapore. So let us all get together and work together to advance gender equality together in our beloved nation. And here I'm going to say Majula Singapura. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Soin and Ms. Lim. We've come to the end of today's lecture. We would like to hear your views on the event. Please click the link on our Facebook feed to submit uh, your feedback. Now, Corinna's second lecture will be titled The Caring Economy, and it will take place on 14 May. Details will be on our website and on our Facebook page. We hope to see you then. Thank you all for attending this lecture this evening. Good night.